This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome back, everybody, to Wrestling Omakase. It is episode number 159, and we are back here for another five matches episode. And my guest this week is a Voice of Wrestling podcasting network host, Mr. Andrew Rich from Music of the Mat. Uh, welcome back to the show, Andrew. Hey, John. Yeah, it's good to be back here. Uh, I think the last time I was on was in... Uh, I think October of last year for that worldwide draft we did, um, which I didn't win again because apparently some people out there don't appreciate good booking. But it's in the past now. I'm, I'm moving on. Moving on from that. So. Who won the worldwide draft? I don't even remember. Was it me? I don't remember either. Yeah. <laughs> not me. Not me. That's what's important. Not me. <laughs> not you. I haven't. Yeah. We haven't done a draft in a while. Maybe we'll do one soon. I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a good reminder that we could do a draft, but. Uh, we're here to do a five matches episode, not a draft. I know you were you were getting very uh, uh, I, I can't a little remember. antsy. It, I yeah. it was in the Voice of Wrestling in the Overcase channel. I think yeah, when I, I had on I had on Joe Gagne and Rich Krage made uh, a crack like oh really scraping the bottom of the barrel here if you got Joe Gagne and you were like hey I haven't been on at all yet you know yeah I'm like the, the like the second to last. VOW podcast person that hasn't been on the show yet, for God's sake. Well, not the you second. Know, the mind, second your, mind your manners there, Krejci. Come on. Not, not the second last podcast person because some of these shows have multiple hosts, and I've only done one host for each one, uh, except for the flagship. The flagship, I did both already. But yeah, so you're yeah. There's actually a bunch of people behind who haven't. Uh, that's what, yeah, that's what I meant. I think I meant yeah. the podcast, but um, yeah. But yeah. Like, uh, you know, I just want to, I can imagine, like, I don't know, one of the other hosts, like, getting annoyed, so I wanted to point that out. <laughs> but, yeah, um, you know, that's it, true. It's just, it's just music on the mat, and then the last one would be Shake the Ropes, so uh, I don't... Shake the Ropes, I have to, like, I have to reach out to one of them, I guess. I don't really talk to either one of them very often, which, not that I don't like them or anything, but it's just, like, one of the hosts isn't even in the Slack, and the other one almost never post in the slack so it's like i feel like i never see them you know so uh have to have to reach out and set something up i guess but uh so we are here to do a five matches episode uh like i said off the air this question 
doesn't really get very interesting answers lately. But what has been up with you, Andrew? How are you enjoying uh, the current dystopia? Uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you just gotta, just gotta get through it. I mean, that's what they all say. I know, but it is. It's true. But um, no, I'm fine. I'm I'm still working. Thank God. Um, I have to go to work. I can't just work from home. But I still have a job, which, knock on wood, a lot of people don't have, unfortunately. But um, but yeah, I'm just getting through it. I'm, I'm watching, you know, wrestling, watching, uh, watching TV, listening to podcasts, reading books, just uh, you know, keeping keeping myself busy. I guess. Yeah. I mean, uh, I took off from work this week, but it's like I just did it just to use my vacation days because it's like, you know, use them or lose them. And it's like, mm. uh, it, it. I mean, there's a difference, but I mean, I'm working from home, so it's not like there's a big difference. It's like either way, I'm, you know, sitting in my room uh, <laughs> watching stuff, you know. Mm. I think that's kind of what we're all doing. But Yeah, I got, uh, I, I got some vacation days I put in for them in, um, I think, October. And it's like, well... Even if nothing happens, nothing's cleared up by then, which odds are it won't be. I still, you know, it's vacation days and getting paid to sit at home and do nothing. That's that's the dream. So yeah, yeah. What are you gonna do? I guess. I mean this yeah. this whole this whole shit at this point. Like when I months ago, I would have like freaked out, but now it's like I hear an expert say, "Oh, you know, the vaccine and." Combined with herd immunity, well, maybe we back to normal by summer 2021. I'm just like, wow, that's soon. Great, <laughs> summer 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Be able to yeah. leave our asses again. Uh, yeah. Get, after months of this, it's just like you, you're just desperate for any fucking horizon, you know. So. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, the the one thing I've been doing a lot of lately is watching a particular anime, which I have to give a recommendation to the people who listen to the show and uh, want to hear my anime recommendations, which there's more of them than you'd think from what I've the feedback I've gotten. So everybody needs to watch Hamifura, which is uh, it's a shortening of a much longer name, which I'm not gonna try to read in Japanese, but uh, it's. And the English title is "My Next Life as a Villainous." All road, all roots lead to doom. Uh, it's on Crunchyroll. I'm sure you can find it on fan subs and stuff. But it is like the best anime I've watched in forever. I think <laughs> like it was the first one where I can't remember the last time I just sat down, even during this <laughs> pandemic, and like marathoned all twelve episodes of a show in one day. But I just like couldn't stop watching it. So it's like the funniest. Uh, I don't know, like. I don't know how to describe it. I guess Isekai romantic comedy. I don't know. It's really, really, really funny. So I would definitely recommend it. We're definitely going to cover it on a future anime omakase over on the Patreon. So uh, might as well watch it now if you're a Patreon subscriber. But yeah, I had to, I had to give a hearty recommendation for that. So Andrew, I know you're a big anime fan. Rush out and uh, watch, watch <laughs> Hame for a... I'll take your word for it. <laughs> There's a few people in the Slack that are watching it. I know Taylor... Yeah. Taylor, Kelly, uh, Paul had already watched it, so, you know, people do seem to like it, but yeah, if you like... Well, I guess, um, branching off of that, I am right now watching for the first time um, Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, which is sort of close to anime, because, you know, very similar looking styles, I guess, but I'm enjoying that quite a lot, so uh, who knows, maybe I'll, I'll branch further into... Uh, your anime worlds, John. If you I'm should. Getting, you if should I'm watch. You should watch Hamifur. It's only twelve episodes, and they're a half hour each. 
All so right. It'll be done a lot faster in Avatar. What, who wouldn't want to watch an anime about a Japanese girl who reincarnates into a romance game that she was playing as the villainess? It's great. It's a great tale as old as time. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great setup. But yeah, it's a. It's it's really it is really a great anime. I can't like the 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 animation is like nothing special, but like just the writing and like the char- and the characterizations and stuff really carries it. So there's so like pretty much every character on the show is very likable, which obviously mm. goes a long way uh, for that type of show. Uh, speaking of the Patreon, I do need to go ahead and plug the Patreon. So for those of you listening who have not yet subscribed. Uh, you know, it's patreon.com slash wrestling omakase. Uh, this is the start of a new month, of course. I'm uh, recording this on August 2nd, so it's a great time to sign up. You get everything that we did in June and July, which is, um, you know, a ton right now. We did the, we finished the Okada Tanahashi series, so you can listen along to all 13 episodes, uh, following along on all the Okada Tanahashi matches one by one. And, you know, I don't just talk about the Okada Tanahashi matches themselves. I, really like try to fill in the gaps uh of what each guy was doing in between each match so it ends up being like kind of like a history lesson if you've never watched that period of new japan from like you know 2012 through like 20 well i mean they wrestle all the way up to 2019 but like if you especially if you never watched the early years of the bushiroad era i think you'll uh you know get a lot out of it like from a historical perspective um so you have that uh, we just started our second series, which is fo- watching all the Naito Ishii matches in order. Uh, we have three of those up already, and you know we have seven more to come. So those are both uh, the big one-match series where, like I said, we cover all the matches in chronological order. We talk about what else the two guys have been doing. Um, you know, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, we also just did a exclusive Sengoku Lord review with me and uh, my buddy Quinlan. We did that review right after watching it, and I know that was a controversial show, so if you want to hear all my Sengoku Lord thoughts, uh, you can only do that on the Patreon. Um, we're going to have more. We have, we have exclusive five matches episodes, so if you love these five matches episodes and you want to hear even more, we have four of them in the books already that are only on the Patreon uh, with myself and Rich Krejci from the flagship, uh, Alan Cunahan from PW Torch, uh, Nate from the Everything Elite podcast, and Robin Reed from the VOW Quiz Night. So those are up right now on the Patreon for you to listen to. Um, coming up next, next week, we'll have another Patreon-exclusive Five Matches episode with Todd Martin from the PW Torch. So that'll be a lot of fun, so definitely check out uh, You know, if you want even more Five Matches That'll be exclusive for the Patreon, and only patrons can vote on the fifth match on those episodes, so you'll be able to vote for that. Um, what else we have coming up this month? We have our first tournament coverage, so just like they do on the VOW uh, Patreon, we're going to do daily tournament coverage. Um, we're going to start with King of DDT, which is obviously a tournament you cannot hear them cover on the on the uh, Voice of Wrestling Patreon. So we're going to cover the first two <laughs> rounds of King of DDT. We'll probably do some Tokyo Joshi Princess Cup as well. It depends on time more than anything, honestly. But I think we're going to do both, probably. Uh, maybe some Stardom 5-star GP. So just a ton of stuff on the Wrestling Omakase Patreon. Historical stuff, current stuff. You get all of it for $5. Uh, you know, it's uh, I think it's a great deal. So go to patreon.com slash wrestlingomakase. Uh, the link, of course, will also be in the description So of this of this episode I made. So definitely check out our Patreon for 5 bucks. All that great stuff. All right, so let's get into our match picks here. Uh, We'll start out with 
your first pick, which was Naroki Doi, Masato Yoshino, Magnitude Kishiwada, Gamma, Cybercon, Geki Horiguchi, and Jack Evans versus Shima, Ryu Saito, Susumu Yokosuka, Dragon Kid, BB Hulk, Anthony W. Mori, and Matt Seidel from Dragon Gate, April 17th, 2007. A 14-man uh, Naniwa-style uh, elimination match from Corican Hall. Uh, this is basically two guys start, one from each team. Every two minutes, another man enters. Uh, elimination is pinfall, submission, or over-the-top rope, although, as I completely forgot about, the over-the-top rope thing doesn't start until all 14 guys are in the ring. Uh, or all 14 guys have entered the match, I mean. So, uh, I was wondering, like, why the hell is Jack Evans jumping over yeah. the top rope at one yeah. point? But then, like, everybody gets in, and the, the announcer, like, makes an announcement in Japanese that, like, over-the-top rope eliminations are now active. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. I forgot about that. Uh, but this was the Raging uh, Muscle Outlaws versus Typhoon feud. Um, you know, both of these units at this point were, like, these mega armies, like, pretty much the closest thing you have in Dragon Gate history to the, like, Blood Warriors versus... Junction 3 era that I think people are very familiar with, but not everybody in the company was in these two units, but almost everybody was at this point. Uh, we were also about to get a break-off unit, though, that was going to change things, and it actually happened at the end of this match. Um, I don't know if you knew that or not, because it's not, it's not included in the video for some reason. But yeah, but Shima and Gamma on each side had said for weeks that basically someone on the other team was going to turn on them, and... It, they both did at the end of like both both units did have someone turn on them at the end of this but not for the reasons that each of them expected i'm sure uh so i guess uh andrew why did you choose this match and uh you know just kind of introduce mm-hmm. your thought process there yeah sure so i first watched this match like years and years and years ago on like early youtube and it was actually, like, one of the first Dragon Gate matches I remember really seeing. Not not the first. I think the first one I ever saw was that famous um, six-man WrestleMania weekend tag, of course. Um, but uh, this match, they did introduce me to a lot of guys who I didn't really know about before. Um, obviously, I knew about Shima, uh, Doi, Yoshino, and, and Genki and Saito and, and Dragon Kid from that match. But um, I knew Saidal, too, Jack Evans from the indie scene, but um, I think I knew Susumu as well, too, but this is my first time seeing uh, guys like CyberKong, BB Hulk, um, Anthony W. Mori, Gamma, Kishiwada, so it's a match that does hold some importance in my wrestling fandom as far as uh, opening the gate, if you will, uh, into learning more about who these Dragon Gate guys are. And uh, after I watched it, I kind of forgot about it for a number of years, and then up until maybe a few months ago, even, I was like, oh, oh, yeah, what about that? I remember that big elimination tag match in Dragon Gate when I watched it when I was young. I wonder if I can find that. And uh, and I did. And I found it. And uh, I watched it a few months ago. And I liked, it still, still held up for me a lot. And I decided to uh, have it again here. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting pick because it's not one of the ones I think. I mean, it's a, it. It, it, I I could be wrong on this, but I think Dragon Gate fans, like to Dragon Gate fans of the time, it would be more famous for the post-match angle than for the actual match. But that's not to say it's not a great match. I mean, it does it does rule. But like one big problem with just which has nothing to do with the it's not anyone's fault in the match is this is really clipped, uh, especially early on. I mean, like I was surprised just by how heavily, how heavily it was clipped. I mean, you can definitely tell early on, like, until everybody gets in the ring or until all the entrants come in that, like, you know, when these en- these entries are supposed to be two minutes and, like, they- mm. they're, like, 50- they're, like, ten seconds. Yeah. Uh, like, sometimes the clipping is okay. Sometimes it's, like, 
very like uh, jarring at points. But uh, you know, it's not really anybody's fault. It's just how they did things back then. You know, they had to fit this match into uh, you know a one or two hour infinity slot or whatever it was at the time. I think it was actually one hour. So, um, but yeah. So the match starts with Shima and Gamma, who at this point were still very hated rivals. I mean, uh, Gamma. Gamma joining must or Gamma joining Blood Generation as Magnitude Kishiwata's like temporary replacement when he was injured was like the entire reason why the the uh, Muscle Outlaws split off happened and Shima went back to Babyface because he just could not stand Gamma. Uh, of course, later on they would become uh, partners and buddies, which was uh, I still remember thinking that was very weird even at the time. And it's like okay, now they're now they're friends. Uh, but yeah, so like I said, definitely not two minutes unless uh, something was clipped, which it clearly was. Uh, and then Naruki Dory runs out for Muscle Outlaws. Uh, you know, we get, and then I just around here, uh, I noticed that the evil Muscle Outlaws ref Kinta uh, Tomoaka is out there. Do you know what happened to Kinta? Do you remember that story? Um, I remember reading a little bit of it because you know, obviously, I didn't know who this guy was when I first watched it, and I still didn't know much who he was when I rewatched it. But I think he there was some sort of scandal. I think with him. Yeah, he right? got he got caught with speed. I think, which is a big, uh, that'll, big that'll do it. Big yep. big no no in Japan. Not not the most uh, drug friendly country. So no, I just, just remember ask Max, just ask Matt Sidell. So yeah, 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 yeah who's also in this yeah. match? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. Kinta. It was a kind of funny headline because I guess he was very well known as being the Muscle Outlaws evil ref at the time, even though he hadn't, he hadn't been that in many years by then. And like, you know, the, the headline was something like uh, "Fast Count Ref Gets Caught with Speed" or something. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I'm glad they're making a big joke out of it. But yeah, he he trained as a wrestler, which you can clearly see a few times during this match. But uh, well, he takes bumps and he does like moves, so yeah. you know, I, I figured he has some training. In that sense. Uh, Dragon Kid was out next for Typhoon. Uh, and this is where, like, to me, it became very obvious that this was happily clipped. Uh, and then Genki came up from Muscle Outlaws. Heel Genki is, like, so jarring after all <laughs> this time of him being a babyface again. Like, at the time, I don't think it was that jarring because he had been a heel for, a, a, you know, a bunch of years before he kind of, like, just turned de facto face in Do Fixer because everybody would... Uh, chant about his bald spot basically but like you know he went like so vicious with this heel turn like you know he looks almost like uh some kind of cultist or something i don't know but like he goes right after his former do fixer teammate dragon kid which you know makes a lot of sense he like whips him into the chairs on the floor and stuff uh and then kinta starts going after yagi for the first time he's like stretching his arm against the rope for some reason it's like okay even the refs can't get along in this one uh, ooh, someone very, I don't know if you could hear that very loudly revving up the engine outside. Uh, up next for Typhoon is BB Hulk. It, yeah. yeah, it's like wow, <laughs> everybody's bored. Everybody. Uh, so BB Hulk like cleans house briefly until Gamma just kind of like stops him by dragging his face against the top rope. Uh, and this again was part where it's like so clipped that's kind of hard to watch. It like really jumps around, but thankfully they will calm down with that later on. Uh, Cybercon comes in for Muscle Outlaws, and we get the big Pineapple Bomber by Kong to the back of Hulk's head, and then he goes after Shima. Now, since you're, of course, a theme music guy, did you notice mm-hmm. that this uh, Kong, when he came out, like, it just says, U-S-A, before his theme song? A little, I was a little confused, <laughs> but I know, he, I know he spent a good portion of his early career in, in the U.S., 
in like California, but it's still a little jarring to hear like Cybercon. You at? It was a little very strange, yeah. Because like they, the whole story with him was they they discovered him in America as a uh, well, he was like a competitive arm wrestler, and he was like the first Dragon Gate uh, USA, um, you know, graduate. But for a long time, I don't know why they did this. They pretended he was like Japanese American. Um, you know, basically pretended he w- he grew up in America, and then like years, I guess, to make him more exotic or whatever, with his uh, you know, wacky uh, fucking pineapple gimmick or whatever the fuck. And then later on, they did finally admit that no, he was a Japanese man that just happened to be living in America at the time they discovered him. But yeah, they were very big on the Americanness of him at this point, which is why his theme song goes USA, which I just thought was really funny. Uh, Ryu Saito comes in for Typhoon next, and he tries to take on Kong and Doi by himself, which is kind of funny. It, all, it pretty much works for a little bit. He, like, gets in a big slap battle with Doi, and then he, like, belly-to-belly suplexes him into Kong in the corner. But his ex-partner, Genki, uh, comes back with some vicious eye-raking, so that puts a stop to that. But Shima stops him with a low blow, and, uh, touche, I guess. Uh, still no eliminations at this point. Uh, up next for Muscle Outlaws is Jack Evans, and was he coming out to Eminem at this point? I couldn't really tell. Damn right. Okay, there just, you go. Just lose it, yep. Yeah, I'm not a big Eminem person, so uh, I get, I, it definitely makes sense why they, they, they probably think he looks like Eminem. I remember when, like, when Spanky used to come out to My Heart Will Go On because I thought he looked like Leonardo. Yeah, Leonardo, Leonardo Spanky, yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that. Love Japan. Uh, Dory, like, power bombs him into Hulk and Saito, set up in the corner, which he does a flip during, of course, because God forbid Jack Evans not do a flip in any in any situation. Uh, and then this is also where he, like, jumps over the top rope onto a guy he uses as a platform to take out two more guys on the floor. And that's why, when I was like, wasn't that eliminating? Like, did, didn't they just eliminate himself? But... My theory at that time was like, well, maybe you have to be tossed by someone over the top rope, not do a dive. But I just totally forgot that the over the top rope eliminations don't count until, uh, you know, everybody's entered the match, which I should have remembered. But it's been a long time. Um, yeah, that's a that's, that's a generation next move. Ode to the Bulldogs, where Roddy would get a guy up in a rack and then Jack would jump off, like stomp on the guy on the rack and then jump off again and do a splash. So, yeah, he's bringing that kind of stuff to Dragon Gate here. Uh, Seidel comes in next for Typhoon and has a big exchange with Jack Evans the crowd seems to be really into in like a look at these two flippy white boys way. They're like, they, they do seem very into this exchange. But, uh, up next for Muscle Outlaws is Masato Yoshino, who goes right after Seidel and takes him out with the big high-speed sling blade. Uh, we finally get our first elimination here as Gamma rolls up Hulk after Kinta low blows him, and Kinta counts a uh, extremely fast three count. <laughs> I mean, look, if you're going to be an evil ref, just be a damn evil ref. Uh, that was a perfect fast three count. I mean, like, in the time, he probably counted it one in the time it took him to count three. It was maybe not even. That was a great fast three count. Uh, Shima pushes him afterward because he's mad about it, which, you know, can't really blame him. Uh, up next is Anthony W. Mori from Typhoon. Now, he is limping out here in a giant, with his leg in a giant cast. I have no idea what's up with the cast. I, I assume he was actually, like, injured, uh, and it's not an angle, but maybe it was an angle. I just totally forgot about it. Uh, Muscle Outlaws all, like, immediately gang up on him when he rolls in the ring, 
and you know Yoshino like immediately puts him in some kind of wacky figure four and Yagi like immediately stops it so now we have two members of Typhoon who have been eliminated the the one-legged man in the ass-kicking contest lived up to his reputation did not go well for him uh 92 Kishiwada for Muscle Outlaws come in next and you know the problems for Typhoon are just compounding here but this big beast of a man coming in with uh them already down by two and then we get the final member of Typhoon, uh, Susumu Yokosuka. That's all you have. Kishiwara is also the final member of Muscle Outlaws, by the way. And this is where I finally remember that the non rules or over-the-top eliminations don't count until, you know, everybody's entered the match. I don't think anyone gets eliminated over-the-top rope anyway, though. No, it's it's usually it's just pinfall or, or submission or ref stoppage. That's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, they, I know they count, but they, they, they never is elimination. Um... But yeah, at least explains the Evans non-elimination, so. Uh, we get like a super-duper reverse Rana by Dragon Kid after he was that set up. That was nuts. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically, you know, the, first of all, like, Shima has to do like a, you know, a rolling, rev- like a rolling dropkick from the other side to set this up, of course. It's like very, uh, very elaborate in like a very Dragon Gate way. But then, uh, you know, the... I didn't write... Who 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 did he do it on? Do you remember? I can't... I didn't write that down for some reason. I'm very stupid. Uh, I, I don't remember, unfortunately. Whoever it is gets eliminated. So, who was the first elimination? For? But yeah, it sets up a... Basically, Saito does a splash, and Saito does a shooting star press. Oh, I think it was Jack Evans. Yeah, yeah, it was... Yeah. Because yeah. he he's the first one. Okay. So, okay, yeah. You, you got to get confused there for a second. I was like, yeah. didn't he hit it on Jack, but did he not hit? All right. Yeah. yeah. It's Jack Evans. Yeah. Yeah. So Seidel does the shooting star press, and it's the first elimination. So now it's six to five muscle outlaws. Uh, and then Gamma takes an accidental protein powder to the face from Yoshino, <laughs> which I, I always love the accidental protein powder. It's the greatest. Uh, it leads to Shima getting his wacky pinfall clutch. I don't remember what the it was Dose called. Karis clutch. Oh, there you go. And that ties that ties it up at five to five. I should have known you're the uh, the, the robot here would have the listen, man. Moves, move names. I got gotcha. you. All right, come on. Sido <laughs> uh, tri- so that ties it up at five to five. Sido uh, tries to take out Kishiwada, but gets fucking leveled by a huge lariat and then a standing moonsault. Uh, and then I'm not. This is where I'm like, I'm not sure why Kinta is suddenly counting normal. Like he did that really fast count to eliminate Shima. Does he just hate Shima that much? That he like, uh, or not Shima? He did eliminate Hulk. Hulk. Maybe he hates Hulk that much. Yeah, maybe I don't know. I don't know, but like he does normal counts the entire rest of the match, and it's like, where are those fast counts, buddy? I mean, not that he doesn't still cheat for them, as we'll get into, but it's a little weird after that super fast count that now he's just doing normal counts for everyone. Uh, but yeah, they have Sidell and Kishiwata have a really fun exchange. Uh, Sidell like reverses out of the last ride and gets a near fall off this like wacky. It's almost like an armbar into a crucifix. It looks really cool. But Kishiwata finally hits the last ride on him and gets a normal three count from Kinta to eliminate him. So it's now five to four for Muscle Outlaws. Uh, but Kishiwata and Saito have their own little fun exchange, and Saito ends up pinning Kishiwata with uh, one of my favorite cradles of all time, the Messenger, to tie things back up at four to four. She's such. And a- he almost he almost spikes Kishiwata on his head when doing it. I don't know if you <laughs> noticed that, but like Kishiwata almost goes like neck first into the mat. It's like, oh, that was scary. But uh, they, they managed to avoid danger that time. But yeah, it looks it's a cool looking move. I like that, and um, I like uh, I know right now KZ's uh, Skyda special. That's a pretty cool move too. So yeah, what, I mean Dragon Gate's Dragon Gate's always been a home for awesome flash pins. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, Ryusuke then team up on Kong, including hitting like these dueling lariats on him. But Kong comes back with the cyber cutter on Saito for a near fall. And then he pins Saito with the cyber bomb. There's a great little close-up of Genki like laughing at his former partner like a maniac from the floor <laughs> when he's up in the cyber bomb. It's, it's pretty great. But yeah, that puts us back to 4-3 Muscle Outlaws. Uh, Kong immediately eats a swine from Shima and then gets several Jumbo Nokachi lariats from Susumu. Just refuses to go down. Uh, but finally, the fifth one into the Jumbo Nokachi uh, Gatame, which is like the pinfall clutch. Uh, that gets the pin with Shima and Dragon Kid like piling on top for good measure, which I thought was kind of funny. And that ties us back up at 3-3. Three to three. Uh, But Genki Horiguchi thankfully breaks our pattern of the guy who had just gotten the previous pin being the next one eliminated. Although, actually, no, he doesn't kind of, because Shima did pile on top. So I guess you could say he didn't. I don't know. But anyway, he gets the backslide from hell on Shima to eliminate him. Uh, that makes it three to two. So Kenta made a normal count, but Yagi still was mad because like he counted right after a low blow right in front of him. So you know, because the backslide from Hell was like the yeah Genki hit a low blow before the backslide, as opposed to the backslide from Heaven, a clean backslide that just had godly power. Uh, <laughs> Kenta gets taken out by a missed Bakatari sliding kick from Doi, and then Susumu. Hits a Jumbo no Kachi on Gamma to pin him to even things back up at 2-2. Two two. Genki. Uh, oh, Genki, I'm sorry. It's a, yeah, it's a Jumbo no Kachi on Genki. Gamma's already long gone, I guess. Uh, Susumu and Doi are the next to do battle with Doi. Uh, basically almost immediately eliminating him with a roll-up right after he pinned Genki. But Susumu comes back and nearly gets him with the Jumbo no Kachi. But Joy, uh, but Doi, I don't know why I call him Joy, I'm sorry. <laughs> Doi gets the V9 clutch out of nowhere to pin him and eliminate him, leaving just dra- poor Dragon Kid against both members of Speed Muscle. Uh, the crowd tries to rally him with a Kiddo chant. They're just like chanting Kiddo, Kiddo, Kiddo. Uh, but they just take him apart with all their double team offense. Uh, DK comes back with a Rana on Doi. When he tries to, like, it's really awesome. Like, Doi, like, gets him up in a powerbomb position off the top rope, and Dragon Kid just turns it into the Rana midair. It's great. Uh, he does a de- deja vu on both of them. That's the one where, like, they pass him from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kinta stops him by hitting a Brain Buster. <laughs> it's just so funny with this fucking referee. It's like, okay, Dragon Kid is, like, five foot zero. And he's up against the strongest tag team in the promotion by himself. <laughs> Do you really need to interrupt him and hit a brain buster shirt? Uh, sir? Gotta get that heat. Gotta <laughs> seems, get that heat, baby. <laughs> seems a little excessive. But fucking Fisherman Yagi has had enough. He hits a Fisherman Buster on Kenta. Uh, Yoshino goes after him, but gets wiped out with a gigantic lariat by Yagi. What an awesome spot that was. Uh, and then Dragon Kid comes in with the Bible. <laughs> Bible on Yoshino to eliminate him. But yeah, that entire sequence is the best thing ever. That's great. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the Yagi Lariat, like you, you've never seen a referee. And again, he was a former re- wrestler. So, like, you know, he had, a, he had quite, a, quite a wrestling career of his own back in T2P. Uh, you know, not, not that he was like more than a mid Carter, but he, he definitely could go. So that was, and then he was also obviously in a, he was the Secret Florida brother. But yeah, I mean, like he, so he had plenty of wrestling experience at the point, so it's not surprising you do such a great lariat, but it was really funny. Uh, Doi powerbombs Dragon Kid into the ropes, then hits the Doi Fives and the Bakatari on him, but Kid somehow kicks out. 
Gamma breaks a chair over his head from the outside, but then Mori is like, well, I can interfere too. And he ships Dory up from the floor. It's uh, like a chain reaction. Like, you know, one guy goes in, the next guy comes in. It's like all these eliminated dudes just, like, you know, coming into, like, hitting each other with big moves. Like, Cyber Kong hits a, a lariat or sets up a lariat to Saito. Then he moves and hits Dory instead. Oh, no. Yeah, so everybody runs in, like you said, and takes turns hitting moves on each other. But Kong accidentally gives the pineapple bomb to Doi. And then Mori hits him with his crutch, which is great. It's like, yeah. you guys picked on me and my broken leg. Fuck you. And then Dragon Kid hits the Dragon Rana on Nuriki Doi for the pinfall and the victory. Uh, 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 the, the move nerd must, must oh, step in here. Sorry. The Ultra Huracan Rana. Yeah, sorry. Uh, which one is the Dragon Rana again? It's the top rope where he does the flip. And right, then, right, and then right. Okay. Uh, Genki immediately jumps Dragon Kid afterwards, but uh, sadly the post-match angle is not included. Do you know what the post-match angle is or no? I'm afraid I don't. So BB Hulk and Cyber Kong both turn on their units to form New Hazard. So this is the, the New Hazard formation right after this. So very cool, very cool angle that I wish they had included, but they just cut off. What are you going to do? Uh, but yeah, this is awesome, especially once everyone's in there and it stopped being clipped to hell. Uh, so it might have been even better for all I know with the with the non-clip portions. But yeah, uh, there were no over-the-top eliminations at all, like we said. It was all action, all pinfalls, including lots of wacky flash pins, which I love. Uh, so I would go four and a half. I really, really enjoyed myself. I don't know, do you, do you want to give a star rating, Andrew? Uh, I don't know if I was in the mood to give one just watching this stuff um it was in, in the fours somewhere in there it just just it's a it's a fun crazy wacky dragon gate multi-man match which they're they're perfect at so um yeah i recommend people should check it out uh, it is a little clipped yeah but um still a good time if you just you know want to put your feet up and watch the watch the madness unfold if you have to say so yeah and i always point this out in the description but for, remember for billy billy uh you cannot watch it on mobile i don't know why but it only plays the first five minutes on mobile so, mm. yeah, you have to watch it on desktop. All right. So the second match uh, is my first pick. Uh, Mayu Iwatani versus Utami Hashishida from Stardom on September 24th, 2018. Uh, is the finals of the 2018 five-star GP. Thought that would be fun to revisit since the 2020 version is about to kick off. Uh, I also had to, of course, give Andrew a woman's match for uh, inside joke reasons. But... <laughs> I, don't know if you want to explain, I don't know if you want to explain that stupid joke or not, but I, I might as well. Why not? <laughs> uh, so earlier in the year, um, everybody you know everybody posts their match of the year lists from 2019 on on Twitter and whatnot, and and I did that, and uh, it just so happens that I didn't have any women's matches in my top ten. Not that I didn't like any women's matches from that year. I did. I liked a bunch of them, but the matches that I did like the most were all men's matches. So I put it on there, and I get some good responses. People like what I'm liking, but um, one person uh, in particular um, decided to quote tweet me uh, with uh, two simple words, which is "women exist," <laughs> which uh, immediately sort of became a little running joke <laughs> amongst the, amongst the VOW people. And, and listen, I kindly and gently and, and politely responded back. Listen, I watched a good amount of women's matches last year. I liked a good amount of them, but these are the matches that I like the most. Nothing, nothing against those women, great wrestlers, but this year, these were my favorite matches of the year. That, that's what it is. And she responded back with, men do not deserve rights. <laughs> so I uh, probably blocked her and uh, got out of my vision and hopefully the rest of my life. So 
Uh, if you're out there, um, there's fuck no, you. There's, no way, there's yeah. no way she's listening to this podcast. But yes, women exist. There you go. Yeah. Uh, that's the that is the story. But yes, uh, this match is a real coming out party for Utami. You know, she had only debuted a few months earlier in August, uh, but was basically like a rookie supernova. Um, you know, oh sorry, go ahead. Oh sorry, I was just going to say uh, it's in my notes. Uh, just the fact that uh, looking up just the data before this, Utami Utami is twenty one years old here, and you know, literally debuting the month before, forty six days ago, I think was the number I saw, and. Um, according to Cave Match, this is like her twelfth match ever. Yeah, and it's insane. Like this would be like Shota Umino debuting in month, and then a month later he's in the finals of the G One. Yeah, like that's the like not you know that's it, pretty nuts to me that someone that young and that inexperienced as a pro wrestler would get this kind of of, of push so early on in her career. Well, what's really even more nuts probably is she didn't look out of place at all. So, it's a yeah, it's a good match. It's a really yeah, good match. Yeah, I mean, like the thing with her is, I, I remember Dave Meltzer uh, tweeted out something like that, basically was like she might even be like Utami might even be a faster learner than Ronda Rousey, and like people freaked the fuck out of him about that. But it's <laughs> like I, I don't know. I mean, not not that I think Ronda was bad or anything, but Utami was like I don't know. Like she really translated her legitimate judo background uh, into wrestling, like. As quickly as you could see anybody do it, basically. I mean, the huge push was in part because uh, her dad is like a famous reality TV star or something. Uh, that's why they call her the big rookie because he's like he's on a show called Big Daddy, I think. <laughs> so there you go. Not nothing to do with the Adam Sandler movie, as far as I know. But yeah, um, but you know, the push is partly because of that. So she has like a celebrity connection, but she also deserves it. I mean, she looks fucking great in this match. Uh, you know, for someone 12 matches into, into her career, I mean, you know, she's better than a lot of people who are 12 years into their career, honestly. Uh, Mayu, of course, is a seven-year veteran already by this point, uh, and she's basically become de facto ace here after her longtime Thunder Rock partner and her rival, Iyu Shirai, had left for WWE land uh, just about three months before this, so she's kind of taken over as ace, uh, which makes sense that she's in this final as well. But yeah, we start things off with uh, a lot of physicality right away. Is, uh, Mayu hits this really hard kick right to Utami on the mat and just like starts going after your arm in the ropes. Um, she really goes after it hard and just like beats your ass in general at the start. Like even like chokes her in the ropes. Very much like uh, you want to step to me, young young person here. I'm going to show you what I can do. Uh, she hits her like big drop kick with Utami draped over the bottom rope, which... Just, look, just looks nasty. I mean, like, the snapback on it just looks really nasty. Uh, she heads up top, though, to try to dive to the floor, but uh, Utami, like, gets back and, like, catches her up there, and she just takes her under her shoulders and just fucking tosses her from the apron to the floor from a fireman's yeah, carry that, position. Yeah, that was my first, oh, shit, of the match, is her, like, press slamming her, like, to the floor. Like, you don't really see something, like, that brutal. Um, especially like that earlier on in the match. I mean, it was it's that popped me for sure. Um, and it became that sort of became like recurring theme of the match where it was going to be Mayu's experience and her speed and her kicks versus Utami's a her grappling, but also her size because you know they're, they're similar heights, I think. But Utami definitely outweighs Mayu for sure. Yeah, she's like, you know, they call her big rookie. She's like five. She's only like five five, which is like only like an inch taller than. Mayu, but she you can tell like she's a 
uh, I don't know, a, a thicker woman, I guess you could say. Definitely has a muscularity advantage as well. Um, but yeah, so Utami, uh, back in the ring, gives her, like, this really cool-looking, like, modified cobra clutch where she, like, just pulls her back by the arms. I don't, is there a word for that, Mr. Move Nerd? No? <laughs> um, cool submission? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she almost gets, like, a Kimura after that, but, like, Mayu manages to crawl the ropes just as we get the five-minute call. Uh, Utami then, like, whips Mayu into the ropes, but Mayu, like, effort- effortlessly jumps onto the top rope and turns and comes back with a missile dropkick, like, all in one motion. That- I love that. That's my second, like, oh shit of the match. Just seeing, like, the speed and, like, the effortlessness that it looked like she just runs up, jumps, turns around, drop kick, like, just like that. It's it's incredible. Her, her athleticism is incredible. Uh, she hits a really vicious looking top rope double stomp, uh, but covers and only gets two. Uh, she goes for her signature dragon suplex, but Utami uh, basically makes it to the ropes to block it. Uh, she then. Uh, catches Mayu coming off the ropes and just fucking tosses her with this sick judo throw. Uh, just looks awesome. And then she locks her in like a choke right after that. And again, like a very like judo style choke, I think. But Mayu makes the ropes. Uh, Utami like pulls her up by her hair, which again just looks very brutal. And goes for her Argentine backbreaker, but uh, Mayu comes back with a high kick and then a kind of a weak lariat, so you can take some points off for that, I guess. But she whips her into the ropes, but Utami comes back with a much harder lariat, which yeah, it almost yeah. it, it almost works for the story of the match. Where like you know, Utami has like this power advantage, and you know, so the weaker lariat kind of sets up this much harder lariat. Uh, but yeah, I mean that looks. Mayu bumps right onto her neck for that, like very much like you've been studying your Naito tapes or something, <laughs> like really, really something. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so both girls are down now. Uh, Mayu comes back with like this backdrop drive, backslide driver, I should say, uh, on Utami for a two count. As we get the ten minute call, uh, she hits a strike combo, including this pretty brutal looking high kick, and then a German suplex dropping her right on her head. Uh, she goes up top again, but Utami stops her and then locks her in the sleeper hold from inside the ring, uh, you know, to the uh, with Mayu on the apron, and then just like muscles her body into the ring from the choke position, which just looks so sick. Uh, Mayu's bendability certainly helps here, but, like, it looks like as vicious a move as you can ever see. Yeah, it was, um, what's it called? Uh, the Saka Otoshi, which is Suzuki's move, where it's like he gets the guy in the sleeper and then, like, pulls him over. That's the Saka Otoshi, and she did it twice, too. She did it from the apron into the ring, and then she did it, like, literally again um, a few seconds later. So, yeah, really really getting over her, again, her grappling skills and uh, sort of giving her a chance to, like, look impressive even as a rookie. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was pretty sick. Um, then we get, she takes her down the mat back, again back in the ring and tries to just choke her out. And Mayu is just doing an amazing job selling that she's fading, but she finally manages to get a foot on the bottom rope to break it. Uh, Utami tries to follow up by picking Mayu up into the into that Argentine backbreaker position and then just drops her to the mat like just tosses her looks great again uh, she covers but uh, even though M- Mayu's doing this great like glassy eyed selling but she still manages to kick out uh, Utami tries a you know a couple more covers but Mayu kicks out each time she goes up top and hits a missile drop kick that just sends uh, Mayu just flying across the ring you yeah know. I mean, just a crazy bump on that. 
That's the um, that's the Walter dropkicked Will Ospreay bump, where he, like he literally like just bounces like all the way across the ring, and it's just like folded up in the corner with his like his legs hanging out outside the ring. It was, yeah, the the, the bendability, like you said, is very uh, it's very uh, very helpful to make Mayu look look in danger. Uh, so then she hits a she goes up top again, but Mayu stops her with a slap to the face. Uh, she hits a hard headbutt up on the top rope, really really hard. And then a top rope Rana and a vicious kick to a seated Utami. Another two kicks after that. Uh, Utami just like roars in response like a movie monster almost. But Mayu like hits another kick to the face. Then two more to a seated Utami. Really just kicking the shit out of her. But Utami kicks out again. Uh, Mayu hits a frog splash off the top. But Utami kicks out again. Uh, we get a reversal sequence before Mayu hits her dragon suplex. Just ba- basically straight down. I mean, like, Utami is, like, you know, she basically turned the dra- the German into the dragon in midair already, so she was, like, kind of hanging up there, and she just drops her straight down. It looks so awesome. And that's the pen. Uh, yeah, this match rules. I think I was a little... In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing slab packs from arenaclub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy slab packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show and there's a random innocuous round bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying oh, hey look at some random cards or whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net, arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. 
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold higher on it the first time i watched it but like utami is just so great here doing her judo throws and just looking like a force of nature uh and then mayu just like selling her ass off for the rookie and just making everything look like death is just great uh i would go four and a quarter this is awesome yeah i liked it a lot too uh, i was a little surprised because the video file is like 35 minutes but the match is only like 15 minutes um, obviously, there's the, the the ceremony afterwards, but I thought, you know, for a Japanese tournament final, it seems a little bit on the shorter side, but I think it makes a lot more sense with Utami in there because she's the rookie and she she's hangs on just enough for her to look credible against Mayu, but not too long where it kind of makes little, you know, she, it, does, it doesn't go too long with it, I think. So I think it keeps building her up there for being with Mayu for that length, length of time, I think. so. Yeah. So, awesome match, and definitely one I recommend checking out if you haven't seen it. We have a link to the Stardom World, uh, you know, where you can watch it on there in the description. It might exist on the high seas, too, because I know there was a, uh, what's it called, version, a uh, Samurai TV broadcast, but I couldn't find it. So, if it's out there, I don't know where it is. Uh, Match number three, Cactus Jack versus Randy Orton from WWE, April 18th, 2004 at Backlash. Uh, this was, of course, your second pick. It was the ultimate blow-off to the Mick Foley coward storyline, uh, where he spent weeks not willing to engage with Orton. Uh, there's a famous angle where he even, like, walks off on an episode of Raw right after Orton, like, spit right in his face. But he made his big return at the 2004 Royal Rumble and, like, took Orton and himself out of the match, which is a really great moment. Uh, and then he and Rock faced the Evolution trio of Orton, Batista, and Flair at WrestleMania 20, which was a great match, and that little, like, uh, did you know, that was Rock's last match in WWE for, like, seven and a half years. So, yep. you know, kind of kind of crazy. Do you know what his, do you remember what his return match was? I do. <laughs> it a, was... What a uh, match. Uh, the Rock and John Cena versus The Awesome Truth <laughs> at Survivor Series 2011. Miz so and, there you go. Miz and uh, R-Truth. Miz and R-Truth, yep. What a fucking match. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, yeah, so this is a singles match, a no-holds-barred, falls-can't-anywhere match. Uh, I totally forgot this before Orton's Intercontinental title. So, yes, Mick Foley as Cactus Jack challenged for the IC title in 2004. It's one of those things that just sounds fake, but it did happen. Uh, I also, to, to make a theme music note, I forgot that Orton was still just coming out to the Evolution theme at this point. Uh, he didn't get his own theme song until he turned face, mm-hmm. right? That's what happened. Yeah, he didn't get Bird of My Light until the face turn after uh, SummerSlam. Yeah. Right. 
So, I mean, I think that was like a, uh, I mean, that song always sounded a little similar to Evolution, so I guess it kind of made sense, right? But, uh... uh I'm not really, I mean, it's it's a younger sounding band, I think. You know, it's not like the gravelly Motorhead. Right, uh, but it's like... It's got a little bit, little, little, little bit of a faster pace to it, but still, it's still a rock song, and so I think... Didn't, I always thought they um, tried to make the opening sound similar to the Evolution opening, I don't know. Maybe it's imagining it in my mind. I could see that, yeah, the... Uh, yeah. That, that sort of yeah. sound, I could see that, yeah. Yeah. Um, despite being Cactus Jack, he just comes out to Foley's theme here, which I thought was interesting. But mm. you know, whatever. Well, they, they kind of it's interchangeable. Like they call him Jack, they call him Mick Foley throughout the match. Yeah. So it's kind of like a it's, it's a little bit iffy, but um, but um, but it's it's a minor, it's a minor thing. So uh, Foley just starts by like swinging his barbed wire bat. Oh, I didn't really ask you why you picked this. I guess so. Why'd you pick this? Sorry. Oh. <laughs> well, um, so that's okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, there's been a little uh, hubbub recently over uh, Monday Night Raw being main evented in 2020 by Randy Orton versus The Big Show. Uh, and I think going off of that, I decided, you know what? Let's go back in time uh, again to my youth, uh, to a time when Randy Orton was still legend killer Randy Orton in Evolution. And I decided to pick um, what I think is the best Randy Orton match ever and um, arguably the last great match of Mick Foley's career. Um, if you want to argue the uh, Edge match at Mania 26, uh, 22, you can do that too, I think. But uh, but yeah, I love this match. I love the story behind it. Um, I think both guys they work so well here in their respective roles, and I love the violence too. You know, it, this is this is a violent match. You know, it's not like CCW or anything like that. But you know, still a lot of a lot of blood, a lot of thumbtacks, barbed wire, headshots. It gets pretty brutal. Um, the the thing I forgot, I guess, about this match in general, like this whole period, was like just how. I mean, the like, look, they do a better job putting Randy Orton over, both in the commentary and like in the whole point of this match, than they've really put over anyone in the last like decade. It is really jarring to see. Like nobody thinks of two thousand four as the fucking golden age, but just like. Compared to now, it's pretty ridiculous. Like, just listening to Jared King, like, the like King just keeps complaining about how they're gonna, you know, uh, basically, like, you know, he's totally, gonna ruin racing. Yeah. He's gonna make him mutilate him. Oh, yeah. But, like, he's, they're doing a better job getting this match over by doing that than, like, when the fuck do WWE announcers now ever, like, get a match over like this, you know? I mean, yeah. you really can't think of any. Yeah. The, but, the commentary is great, too. You know, Jim Ross, just you know, just just the fact that they're just expounding over and over again. This is this is Cactus Jack McFoley. Like this is the crazy hardcore legend, and you know, Randy Orton is this. He's this cocky youngster who is stepping into the ring with a maniac. And I think you know, I, I love how that's evidenced as well with the opening here, uh, because Randy comes out and he's holding like this two by four wrapped in barbed wire which is, of course, a playoff of Mick with the barbed wire bat. And then Mick comes out, and he's got the actual barbed wire bat in his hand. And then Randy tries to, like, show off his own barbed wire thing. But the barbed wire, like, comes loose, and it falls off the wood and gets caught in the ropes. And Randy realizes this and goes, oh, fuck. And he backs away, like, quickly, grabs a trash can. And Mick just, like, he just starts swinging away at him. And it's, such, it's the perfect dichotomy where Mick is this hardcore legend. He's the veteran. He knows exactly what to do with this scenario. And Randy is the rookie who is not prepared at all and has no idea what he's getting himself into. I love it. Yeah, it's a great little bit of story, little like storytelling there. 
Uh, JR reveals that Foley's weight of 272 here is his lowest weight since 1989. And to be honest, I can kind of tell. He looks like fucking Savelle compared to <laughs> some of his other looks over the years. Uh, so yeah, he really trained hard for this match. Um, Foley does like a spinning neck break on Orton on the floor and like he teases doing the cactus elbow that of course uh, permanently destroyed his body, but thankfully cooler heads prevail on that one and Orton like rolls out of the way. Um, but then he gives Foley a sick as hell backdrop suplex on the ramp, which is yeah. his head smashing off it, so that couldn't look good either. Uh, he gets a two count on that. He also tries to backslide the ramp, which is kind of funny. It's like, let me backslide him here in this New Orleans part. It's false, false count anywhere. Yeah. You know, might as well try anything. Uh, <laughs> so you, then, you never know. It could it could work. You never know. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have Ginky Horiguchi's energy for that, so it doesn't have the backslide. No, unfortunately. Uh, Foley pulls out Mr. Sacco, despite being in Cactus Jack persona, but then he... After he puts it on his hand, he, like, pulls it off, and, like, he goes with Barbie and Steph after pulling the crowd, which is kind of funny. I'm not sure if the crowd actually wanted Barbie more, the barbed wire bat, uh, but, like, that's what that was the decision Foley came to, so. I think it was more of a split decision, honestly. Uh, but, yeah, so he nailed- I think they did. Okay. I think you could hear the, the cheers more for, for barbed wire bat over the Sacco. Uh, he hits Orton in the face with it, and Orton, of course, blades, and... Yeah, it just fucking bleeds all over the place. And this is where the announcers, like I said, really go into high gear about, like, how Orton's going to be permanently disfigured and all this stuff. Uh, Foley, like... There's, put... there's a great... There's... Oh, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. But uh, there's a great exchange between JR and King where King goes, Oh, no, Randy! He's supposed to be in the cover of GQ magazine. He can't do that anymore. And JR goes, He'll be in the cover of Disfigurement Weekly, right? <laughs> now, but... <laughs> Disfigurement Weekly. I thought it was a uh, funny exchange. That, famo- that famous... Uh, Disfigurement Weekly, yeah. <laughs> uh, famous magazine everybody reads. Uh, Foley puts the barbed wire bat over Orton's crotch and leg drops it, which that really gets a rise out of the crowd. Like The you could, the crowd's already in the match, <laughs> but they're just like, whoa, his crotch! Uh, Foley pulls out a gasoline can and a lighter. He pours the gas over Barbie, but then Eric Bischoff comes out to interrupt him and says, if you like that... Not only will you lose the match, uh, how does that work? It's no holds barred. But anyway, not only will you lose the match, but the fire marshal will shut the show down and people will miss the end of backlash. That could have been a shoot for all we know. It wouldn't surprise me if, like, fully wanted to do it, wanted to do the spot, and, like, they tried to ask the fire marshal, and the fire marshal was actually like, no, you're not lighting a barbed wire bat on fire in the middle <laughs> of this Edmonton arena. He would finally get fire in Chicago two years later. Uh, for the edge match yeah, yeah so chicago yeah. i guess chicago was more willing to do fire than edmonton but i'm just guessing i mean i just kind of feel like that that easily could have been a shoot maybe just maybe just didn't want to do fire but who knows yeah um and then the crowd you could tell they're disappointed about it but uh very smartly mick immediately goes under the ring and pulls out the barbed wire board so yeah. it's like a little little disappointment but i mean they get the crowd back on their back up on their side so yeah the i mean they could have just not even teased it but I think it was a thing where like Foley was like well I'm in this mode everybody knows I did this fire thing so I have to at least tease it but uh, Orton pulls yeah, out yeah. Orton like gets a great counter here he pulls out some powder which I, I love the powder like the random powder more he, powder yeah <laughs> he has this little box in the corner so I guess he had the powder in the box and it's like you know what if you're going to no hose bar match against a crazy person I might and I, I was like a heel I might bring some powder too it's not a, not a bad idea uh, he slams Foley onto the barbed wire board, which looks sick as hell, of course. Uh, Foley kicks out two from the cover. 
uh, and then Foley goes into the barbed wire board again in the corner. There's a great, it's a great spot because like Orton reverses or Foley reverses the Orton Irish whip, but then at the last possible second, Orton yeah. reverses it again. So it's a great little spot there. And again, the crowd like they see Rainy go towards it, like oh my god, oh no, and then he goes right. It's Mickey versus the Mick. Right? And Orton does like a standing yeah. drop kick for good measure too with Foley and the barbed wire, which looks pretty sick. Uh, mm-hmm. Orton po- opens up his box of death and pulls out a bag, <laughs> which turns out to be full of thumbtacks. Uh, I totally forgot that it was Randy Orton who introduced the thumbtacks and not Mick Foley. That's kind of crazy. Uh, he pours them all out. He hits the ropes and goes to RKO Foley into them, but Foley shoves him off into the thumbtacks instead, and this Kane is, just starts screaming. Yeah, this is my favorite spot of the match because there's so much there's so much great stuff about it. You can see when Randy pours the tacks, he doesn't try to hit the RKO immediately. You can see him, like, try to figure out, okay, how can I hit the RKO to Mick onto the tacks, but, like, not get the tacks myself? He's trying to figure this out, and he's taking way too long to figure it out because it allows Mick to reverse it. And that's the brilliance of it, you know, because Mick would just do it regardless. Like, he would just, doesn't matter about himself, he just wants to hurt Randy, but Randy's so concerned about his own well-being that he wants to, like, try to like hurt Mick on himself with the tax. But there's also just Randy selling. It's fantastic. The visual of him just screaming with the blood on his face, the tax in his back and his hands, his hands are shaking. King's like, oh no, Randy JR's, oh my God in heaven. The visual <laughs> looks cool. Like it, it's a moment of catharsis because Randy's such a, an asshole that you want to see him get hurt so much. But yeah, it, it's all it's all fantastic. I love that moment so much. Um, then Orton like Orton just starts like retreating to the back and Foley and the ref follow him uh, they reemerge very quickly afterward I'm not sure what that's about uh, maybe they were taking the thumbtacks out of his hand because he would need you know he would need this hand to continue the match honestly and I feel like the thumbtacks are missing from his hand after that so maybe yeah usually if someone goes to the back there's a cameraman there ready to, to film them yeah but Maybe that maybe your theory is right because I I didn't think about that. Yeah, because it looked like he was trying to take them out by himself, but maybe then he, you know, he just went to the back and was like, "I need to get these damn thumbtacks out of my hand at least." Uh, but yeah, so then Foley tosses Orton off the damn stage through two tables, which again, <laughs> and then Orton is uh just down as out as the EMTs come to check on him. Foley then gives him the elbow off the stage because why not? I guess, but he covers him on the floor and Orton once again kicks out somehow. Uh. You know, the, the, anything about the stage thing do you want to add, I guess? Um, not really. I mean, it's, it's another really cool spot and another example of Randy just getting absolutely destroyed in this match. I mean, like, there are moments where, like, you have the barbed wire board and, and, and hitting him with, you know, the cookie sheet or whatever. Like, there are moments where Randy does get offense in, but most of this match is Mick just beating the ever-loving shit out of Randy. And it's it feels pretty good, as I must say. As a kid, I loved watching it because I hate Randy Orton so much. So you were already you were already watching at this point? Oh yeah, yeah. I was okay. I've been watching for like uh uh maybe eight months eight. at this point, I think. Right. That makes sense. Uh yeah. yeah, this is this was definitely like when I was starting to like I was like, hmm, maybe WD is good again. Uh but then, you know, then Eugene started getting uh heavily pushed and it's like, oh never mind. Yeah, that that would do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh Orton comes back using Barbie on Foley, but Foley pull puts uh Mr. Sacco on while he's down and locks the mandible claw on him. I don't love that he went back to Mr. Sacco. I just kind of wish he had not bothered with that. Uh, Orton counters the RKO out of nowhere. I think they even say out of nowhere. Uh, and covers, but Foley kicks out too. 
uh, Orton hits a final RKO on the baseball bat. That could have looked a little better, especially after all this crazy stuff. It's just kind of, it, I mean, I know out of nowhere is this whole thing, but like it, it barely looks like it grazes the baseball bat. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you got to figure out how to do that without like actually like taking Mick's eye out with a yeah. with a bar barbed wire. But yeah, uh, it, it does look a little does look a little little janky, but still, it it you know it's effective because he got the win with it. So. Uh, so this match indeed but, holds up. But yeah, but, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. One more thing. Um, this is like again the classic Mick Foley. You need to kill him ending because when you know when Randy hits the RKO for the first time, Mick kicks out. I don't. I don't think that never happened before. I think the, the RKO was very protected at this time, and it's like, oh my god, Mick is like superhuman. He's going to win this thing, and then that hope is immediately dashed when Randy hits the RKO on the, on the bat. Which is a parallel to the iconic Triple H Cactus Jack street fight from the Rumble in 2000, where Triple H hits the pedigree and Mick kicks out, and it's like he's gonna do it, he's gonna win. Then immediately after, another pedigree on the tax. So like finisher, kick out, and then hardcore finisher to put Mick to finally put Mick down. So I like that little like little uh, little parallel there between the two uh, matches. Uh, so yeah, this does hold up. I would say. It does rule. I mean, I have a little minor complaints with the match flow. It, it does kind of drag a couple points, uh, especially like I don't know, like the stuff with the stage feels a little like overkill, as do like some of all the, some of the kickouts. Um, I just kind of wish they had gone right to the finish after the thumbtacks. Um, you know, I think that would have been better. But what are you gonna do? Uh, I still went four and a quarter. So it was it absolutely rules, and you know, great, just ridiculous bumping and selling from both guys, obviously. Uh, you know, maybe mm-hmm. maybe could have shaved off a few minutes, but definitely an awesome match. Yeah, that's a minor complaint. I, I could see that for sure, but I, I, I kind of the same feeling too. But uh, but still, I, I love this match so much. Um, and it really like you know this really made Randy Orton come into his own in a lot of ways because you know for so long he'd win matches with Evolution's help. You know, Ric Flair would be there, Batista would be there, but Randy wins this you know on his own, and it's it's the beginning of what will become later in the summer. Randy Orton's, you know, greater push, which was him beating Ben Moff World Title at SummerSlam and becoming the youngest world champion in the company's history. So um, this is the beginning of that stage for sure. But um, but yeah, it's, it's a great match. I recommend it wholeheartedly. Yeah, I mean, Orton 2004 is really awesome in general. I mean, I remember he has a... There's some match he has with Edge, I think, for the IC title a few months later that's really, really good. Um, you know, it just has... Yeah, there's a match with that, uh, a Benjamin match at Bad Blood. But it's also pretty good too. Yeah, I mean, definitely, um, definitely yeah, one of yeah, his better yeah. years. Randy Orton is, is is good. So, well, he was good at some points. I don't know about. He also was very boring at other points. So, you know. Uh, do you know who Mick Foley's next match is after this? Do you know what his next match is? Andrew, you break. You're choppy. You're breaking up. Could you repeat uh, that? I said, do you know what what uh, Mick Foley's next match after this is? Um, was it was it the Edge match? No. So three weeks after this match, he goes to Japan to challenge Toshiaki Kawada for the Triple Crown oh, title. Oh yes! In the main event of Hustle Three, I forgot about that. <laughs> it's really funny. Match is awful, That's by the right. way. Right, I forgot about that. Because uh, Kawada, it was supposed to be Kawada versus Goldberg originally, but like Goldberg got hurt. Uh, Foley was a late replacement. Kawada was also hurt and was like, well, why am I still wrestling if uh, I'm hurt? But, uh, 
you know, Goldberg can pull out of, I guess. So he was just in a bad mood to begin with. And then he, like, buried him during the buildup and said, like, only hardcore wrestling fans in Japan even know who Foley is. And he's not worthy of a triple crown shot. And, you know, he definitely treated him like that in the actual match, if I, if I remember correctly. So, like, he barely sold for him. So it was a weird, like, awkward 13-minute match. But definitely a historical oddity to check out. So... But yeah, I just remembered about that, so I thought it'd be a fun little trivia fact. Anyway, so, match number four, Tetsuya Naito versus Yujiro Takahashi from New Japan on July 24th of 2014. Uh, so I picked this because Yujiro's been in the news lately. He's, uh, you know, this is his biggest push that he's getting right now since 2014, for sure. I mean, this was basically the last big foot push for Yujiro up until, you know, this weird pandemic push that he's getting right now. So, um, he had just turned on Chaos. He cost Kazuchika Okada the IWGP Heavyweight title against AJ Styles back in May. Uh, and then about a month later, he beat Tomohiro Ishii for the never open weight title uh, with Bullet Club's help, which he has here. Um, of course, he would never win another title after that other than a, a three-day reign. There's never six-man tag team champions. I think that's it was like him, Folly, and Tomatonga or something. A very, very, uh, very big reign there. Big three-day reign. But other than that, he would never hold another title. Uh, this is also his final meeting with Naito. His final singles meeting ever. Um, you know, he just has a... Him and Naito, of course, were Team Don't Limit. Uh, they have a lot of history. But, you know, after this after this run, this 2014 run that ends when he loses the never title back to Ishii in October. I mean, he's just never pushed as a singles threat again. And, you know, I, I, I don't remember exactly what his last G1 was. I think it might have been 2015. I'm going to look that up, actually. Correct, yeah. It was 2015? Okay. So, like, you know, he just wasn't in the same block as Naito yeah. in 2015. And, you know, after that, like, when the fuck are Naito and Yujiro ever going to have a singles match, you know? It would be, like, quite the step down from Naito. Um, but if you, like, the, because they haven't had any singles matches since here... Uh, Yujiro had a either depending on how well you want to count it, either had a five and three record against Naito entering this match. Uh, if you don't count their many meetings as young lions, if you did count those meetings, you'd have to add another twelve wins. Yes, twelve to Yujiro's record uh, because he was Naito's senior when they were both young lions. You know, so you, the senior young lion always beats the junior young lion every time. So that's just uh, you know. He beat beat Naito twelve times as young line. So he's either five and three or seventeen and three entering this match, depending on how you want to look at it. Naito did win their last meeting in uh October twenty thirteen at King of Pro Wrestling, a never open weight title defense, but uh, you know, it didn't the, the the series has not gone well for him here. Uh we should mention too, because you're the theme music guy, of course. Yujiro has his vastly superior theme song here. Hopefully you agree. Uh yeah. All night long, yeah. Come on, <laughs> I I miss this theme a lot because the one he has now is very scuzzy and scumbaggy, but this one has some sex appeal to it. So, um, yeah, it, it really is a, a blast from the past in a lot of different ways. Like, like, the theme music, um, the short blonde hair, um, the never weight championship reign, Mister Rated R, Yujiro Takahashi, which was his nickname at the time. Um, so, you know, I, at first I was a little annoyed to give me a Yujiro match to watch, considering what's going on right now in New Japan, but 
Um, when I heard that theme song, it, it did calm my nerves a little bit there, John. So so thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, it's that's one of those theme song changes where I was like actively mad when they changed the song. So it's like you took this awesome fucking saxophone theme song and replaced it with this, you make me feel so good. It's like, it's just not good. That fucking that theme, amazing. That theme song's not good. I don't know. It's just very, I mean, I, I, I guess it succeeds in what it's trying to do, but it's just very, very boring. It, it fits you, Jiro, I guess. But it's a very boring theme song. Whereas this theme song is well, it's boring. very, it's very, it's very, it's very grimy, which yeah. fits Jujuro very well, I think. So it has that going for it, at least. Yeah. Uh, so the crowd is like firmly on Naito's side here. No signs of the uh, Stardust Genius rejection. But then again, he is facing Yujiro, so you know no one's gonna boo Naito <laughs> against Yujiro. Yeah. Uh, Yujiro like bites Naito's hand to take control and just beats him down uh, but Naito comes back with an arm drag and a really nice high drop kick which gets the crowd into it after they have been a little quiet for the Yujiro control period uh, but Yujiro comes right back with a hot shot across the top rope and then he tries I guess to like drop him over the top rope again but completely misses and just drops Naito right on his fucking head and neck <sighs> A very awkward manner. That spot may tell you something about why Yujiro never got pushed again after this run. Uh, you know, other than the one right now, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it, it reminded me there's a similar spot. Yeah. Yeah, it, it reminded me of when um, he was dressing, I think he was dressing Ishii one time, and it gave him like a buckle bomb, but he fucked it up, and like Ishii went like, like neck first into the buckle, like at a bad angle. That's what it reminded me of. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is why Yujiro doesn't like have singles pushes anymore until until pandemics happen. Like, this is why. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but it's kind of like the only major, like, fuck of the fuck match. So, yeah, I, I, to- I do remember what you're talking about now. I think I do remember that, Matt, that spot. I mean, what, what was what was his next biggest push after this? Probably when he and Hangman Page were briefly a tag team, right? That would be the only other thing. Um, As dick and balls. Yeah, I, I think. um. I think that would be it. Yeah, because I got they got they get they got a tag title shot. I think I think on the G one final. So, I think so. Yeah, I think we. Wait, have, it wasn't against the Briscoes, wasn't yeah, that? Yeah, uh, I believe so. Wasn't that it? I think we have an audio delay right now. By the way, it's just kind of annoying. We but, we do yes, yeah. but uh, yeah. So the the uh, what are you gonna do? I guess, but yeah. So the Ujiro and. Uh, in Hangman Page, I think it's the 2016 G one finals. I think. I could be wrong. Maybe 2017. I don't know. Well, that, uh, I think it was 16 because that was the year that Briscoes were ever champions. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that I mean that's like his only other big push after that, this that I think. It. So, I mean like other than, after that he's pretty much just like a job guy. So. Uh, but yeah, so like Yujiro, you know, so that that spot it, it looks way sicker than what Yujiro was trying to do. So it's one of those botches that kind of works for the match. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it obviously not what they were trying to do, though. Um, and Yujo follows up by booting him off the apron into the railing on the floor, which is a really big bump for Naito to take right after he accidentally got dropped on his head. So it's like, okay, I hope I hope Naito's okay. Uh, and then Yujo also drops him headfirst across the railing for good measure uh, before trying to take the count out win, but Naito rolls back in at 16. Um Yujiro, like, stays on him and hits another big boot in the corner. And this is where I noted, like, a big problem with Yujiro in general is that his offense isn't very interesting at all. It's very punchy-kicky. 
in a very like almost American way that stands out. It's not great in New Japan. Uh, and then I'll, right after I write that note down, he followed that up with a really boring chin lock. So it's like, uh, thank you for proving my point, I guess. <laughs> but yes, I don't know how you feel about the Yujiro offensive and repertoire, but. Ah, uh, you know, it's, it, he's very much like a top heavy finisher like thing. Like Tokyo Pimps is a cool move. Miami Shine's a cool move. Pimp Juice, whatever. But everything else is just like, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, he does get better as the match goes on, but at this point it's a little annoying. Uh, he does come back with a nice little sliding one-leg drop kick after the chin lock, so that's good. That gets a two count. And then things get, like, suddenly really heated with Naito and Yujiro trading, like, really hard slaps, like, really hard ones. Uh, Naito dodges Yujiro's charge in the corner and, like, throws his legs over the middle rope and hits a neck breaker. Uh, that's a move I'm glad he doesn't do much anymore because it never looked that great to me. Uh, but he comes back with... He follows that up with an awesome sliding drop kick, a, his flipping senton. Those obviously look much better. He hits a missile drop kick off the top and looks to be trying for the proto uh, combination Cabron, but Yujiro like lifts him up and sends him to the apron. Uh, Nicole gave me a really hilarious look over my terrible Spanish pronunciation, so I wanted to, <laughs> wanted to point that out. What do you want from me? Okay, I can't. I can't Cabron. speak. Cabron. <laughs> what is it, Nicole? Come say it in the microphone. It's more like Cabron. Okay, there you go. I don't know if people could you hear her or no, Andrew. I could hear it. Okay. I, I took twelve years of Spanish, so I, guess I could probably say it too. Okay, give, to, go ahead. Give give it to me, Angie. Combinación de cabrón. All right, that was actually really good. Uh, those twelve years of Spanish are working for, working out well for you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Yujiro lifts him up and sends him to the apron before throwing him head first into the post. Uh, he sets Naito up on the top rope and hits a top rope belly to belly superplex. So really, finally getting some good offense here. But Naito kicks out at two. Yujiro uh, hits an Enzigiri and a Fisherman's Buster for two. And then a really nice high angle Olympic Slam for another two count. So after I complained about his offense, his offense improved a lot. So maybe six years in the past, he heard me. Uh, Naito tries a couple flash pins, including a Japanese leg roll clutch that looks great and uh, was a really close 2.9 count. But then Yujiro goes, goes right to the eyes to stop the momentum. Uh, and then he go. Naito gets out of whatever wacky power move Yujiro was trying for and hits a capo kick, and then a huge diving forearm, uh, followed by a German suplex hold for two. Uh, Naito hits Gloria, and then goes to the top rope for the Stardust Press, but Yujiro rolls out of the way. I have to note that people say the Destino is hard to hit, but honestly, he has had way more luck with that than he ever used to trying to hit people with his fucking Stardust Press. <laughs> I mean, I've seen so... I've been watching a bunch of his 2014 stuff for the HGE series and some other stuff, and, like, man, was it hard for him to hit that fucking move. Uh, so, well, at least at least with Destino, he's holding the guy. Exactly. So there's not a chance for him to, like, like, roll out of the way, you know, as opposed to Stardust Press, where it's like, oh, this guy's atop of me? Bye-bye, I'm, I'm out of here, so... <laughs> Uh, Yujiro and Naito trade forearm shots, including a kind of funny, like, horse scream by Naito at one point. Like, I don't know how to even do it. He just, it was a really, really weird scream. Uh, Yujiro gets the better of him with a big boot, uh, puts him up on his shoulders again, but Naito gets down and hits Enzigiri. But Yujiro sidesteps the second diving elbow. Then he catches Naito in midair, coming off the ropes, and hits a really nice deadlift German for a two count. That was an awesome spot. Uh, he hits a sick buckle bomb, really like power bombing him right in the turnbuckles, and then whatever the finisher was, was this the Miami Shine? 
Miami Shine. Yep. Okay, so it's like that spinning slam from the fireman's carry position, which always looked pretty cool. Uh, and that gets the pen. Uh, but yeah, this was this was really good, you know, especially after Yujiro got the fucking boring out of his system early on. I mean, like, you know, um, Naito really bumps his ass off, and Yujiro finally does a bunch of interesting stuff down the stretch. Uh, I think that carried it to a level of about four stars flat. I thought it was really good by the end. I mean, certainly a lot better than anything you'll see out of Yujiro nowadays. Yeah, it's probably the most I've enjoyed a Yujiro match since watching uh, the Juice Robinson match from New Japan Cup 2018. That was a pretty good match. And and look, Yujiro, the common line is he gets like one pretty good match a year at this point. Um, I don't think we've seen that yet, unfortunately. But uh, but this is this was a good match, and and I could give him credit for hanging in there and not being too boring all the way through. He did pick up as it went on, and Naito's Naito, you know, uh, especially younger Naito, and he's still you know a bit healthier, and he's still got that that stardust genius energy to him. So uh, still, still a pretty good match, all in all. He's still good now, Andrew. What are you talking about? I didn't see he wasn't. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. He definitely little, could do he could definitely could do more with his knees here. He could bend his knees. More, a little bit more energy to him with the gimmick and whatnot. So yeah. you know. Uh this also yeah, this means absolutely. this means that Yujiro and Naito ended their singles match series, because this is the last one of this day, at either six three or eighteen three Yujiro, depending on if you want to count the young lion ones or not. So I don't think Naito's <laughs> ever getting gonna even that score. I mean, he's probably never going to end. He's probably never going to even the six to three, let alone the eighteen to three. So, uh, let's go into match. Oh, sorry, you want to add something? I uh, know that's pretty much it. Okay, so match number five was the fan vote match: Naruki Doi and Masato Yoshino versus the Motor City Machine Guns, uh, Alex Shelley and Chris Sabin from TNA on June twelfth, two thousand eight. Um, this is like the most lopsided fan vote we ever had. It was like it won. I put up like this wacky Dragon Gate four way six man, and it won like seventy three point seven percent to twenty six point three. So people really wanted us to talk about this match for some reason. So I guess go ahead and give me the pitch on why you picked this one. Oh well, um, I was kind of in a, a, a Dragon Gate state of mind after watching the elimination tag, and um, but I also wanted something that's a lot shorter. Because the two, the two matches that I picked were both over 20 minutes long. So I wanted a shorter match that had some Dragon Gate people in it. I figured, what better than Speed Muscle versus The Guns, which I think many consider to be one of the best TV sprints ever. And I'm, I'm, I agree with them. I tend to agree with them because these are two of the best tag teams ever. And I think they just stuffed so much hot action into what is basically just a, a six and a half minute match. So they do a pretty good job in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it, they, there's it's one of those things where like they're going so fast, it's act, actually kind of hard for me to do like play by play. Like I don't have a lot of play by play notes on it. But uh, so Doi and Yoshino are in their World One attire. They just officially formed this unit uh, two less than two weeks before this, um, and you know part of the re- the entire like concept of the unit was like they make these frequent overseas appearances around this time. So that was like their excuse for having World One, which is interesting. Uh, they come out here in TNA to just about the absolute most stereotypical Japanese music of all time. Like somebody that just is... somebody just Googled music of Japan and like played the track that came up. <laughs> that is the requisite Team Japan theme, which of course is the stereotypical Asian music and almost every Japanese 
Japanese wrestler in TNA came out to that song. Uh, everyone from uh, Takawa Mari uh, to No Limit. There you go. Uh, Okada had this music. Even Low Key had this song, <laughs> and he's not even Asian. So that's funny. Milano, uh, Milano, yeah, very Japanese. Milano yeah, collection. Milano collection. At came out to this too, didn't they? Oh yeah, well, he was on Team Japan. So um, <laughs> this was the Team Japan theme. So there you go. Um, but uh, yeah, this was your your typical uh, American company Asian music. So you know. uh, th- why does the video have the Japanese war flag? I don't. It's like that's not really something you should be putting on television. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Uh, how many how many reasons do I have to give? Uh, American Wrestling Company, uh, TNA, Vince Russo, two uh, thousands. Should I go on? Should I go on? <laughs> Very like an ode to fascism. But I'm sure like there are some wrestlers that I'm sure would not mind coming out to the Japanese war flag. But I don't think Dory and Yoshino were like. I don't know. I don't really picture them as like war flag people. But who knows? I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, this crowd, like, really, how the fuck can this crowd boo Yoshino's super fast running and dropkick? Like, they're really into the stupid, like, jingoism of this World X Cup thing. Like, they're chanting USA at random points. Maybe want to, like, fucking go Iron Sheik here and say USA Akpui. Because it's like, what the fuck? Stop with USA chants. Listen. Listen, listen it, this is, you know. It's it's an American TV wrestling crowd. It's it's not that far fetched that they would see USA chance. I mean, we're not that removed from the Attitude Era and, and stuff like that. So um, it's not like this is Ring of Honor. I was you know, but, I was I was um, disgusted. I was disgusted. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah, listen. Go down to Florida and go to Disney World and yell at the people there, or, or Universal Studios, I should say. So uh, I, I do not plan to go to put Florida. It up with them. Do not plan to go to Florida right now, Andrew. Doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> but uh, we we get some more double-team moves by the Motor Machine Guns, and Speed Muscle come back with their own double-team moves, and I really couldn't even take notes. They were going so fast. I don't know. Do you, any spots stand out to you? Uh, well, just... Uh, what was I... I got my notes here. Um, yeah, just the fact that Speed Muscle, they, they get their shit in here a lot because... They do all their signature double team moves with like the double foot stop on the arm, uh, the drop toe drop toe hold into the drop kick, uh, the poetry in motion elbow spot. Um, Yoshino does the hang time drop kick. He does the from jungle, lightning in the jungle, the camillo, which is the hanging neck lock over the ropes. Um, he must have drank like seventy cups of coffee beforehand because he is like going extra fast than usual. <laughs> but I guess it's six and a half minutes. Got to get, get, get your shit in somehow, and they do that there. So. Uh, Mike Tanay at one point, I thought this was really funny. He starts talking about how Doi and Yoshino have held every title in the Dragon Gate promotion, including the world title. That's his direct quote. Uh, that's not true at this point, but it was really prophetic because Doi would go on to win the Open the Dream Gate at the end of 2008, and Yoshino would win it two years later. So, uh, did, did, did Mike Tanay have any lottery numbers for us around this time? Because, like, <laughs> what the fuck? That was that was something. Uh, well, I. I think I think Tanay does a very good job of putting these guys over in general. I think because he gets over their accolades, who they are. He mentions the World One Unit as the, the name of nicknames, uh, putting over their abilities, the fact that they're globetrotters, uh, which is what a good commentator does in wrestling. He, he sells you on who these guys are, and he gets them over to you, and the, and gets their matches over to you, and the stories over to you. He doesn't go, oh, these guys are not holding the tag rope, and 
Is that evil or is that bushy? No, like Mike Tanay did his research. He did his research and he did a great job of putting Doi Yoshino over. And and Don West, listen, I love Don West so much because... Yeah, this is a Don West, lo- pro, pro Don West zone. Don West is awesome. Oh, yeah. He may not have a wrestling background, but he brings so much energy and enthusiasm to the table that you can't help but love the guy. He's and so get into it. He's so ex- he's always so excited at all times. It's really something. I mean, the dumbest one of the dumbest things that company ever did, which is saying something, was when they like turned him heel. Because it's like he's not a heel. I'm sorry. He's a very excited, happy man. But anyway, um, you know. So then Saban like gets a hot tag and does some wacky stuff on both guys. He like sends Yoshino into door in the corner. The drop kick that looked pretty cool. Uh, and then Speed Bus will come back and do some moves, but mostly machine guns. Finally finish Yoshino off with a double super kick for the pin. Uh, this was a fun little seven-minute spot fest. I I get why people think it's like a classic. I don't know if it I consider it like a classic. It's just like, it's too short for me. I'm a very, I'm a long match nerd, I guess, at this, because it's like, I just kind of want them to keep going. But I went like three and a half. It was good. Definitely held my attention. Yeah, I think in the context of it helps too, considering that as far as like sprints go, this is a fantastic sprint, and especially the fact that you know this is you know putting Dwayne Yoshino on American TV at all is pretty cool too. I mean, that was the beauty of TNA for back in the day, where they would have these relationships with their companies from overseas, like in Japan and Mexico, and they would bring in the World X Cup guys like Yoshino, guys like Doi, Milano, Liger, Goto, uh, Taichi was over for for 2004 World X Cup, um, Minoru Tanaka. Um, so they did a great job of, of having this cool little pet lane to Japan. Um, and, and of course, as well, the TNA guys go over to Japan, too, for like Wrestle Kingdoms. So, um, yeah, this is I think this is a really cool little look back into Speed Muscle's, you know, first tag match on American TV. And uh, I think it, it holds up as well. And um, I think that right now, the fact that the guns have kind of returned to prominence, too, in Impact... I think that's kind of a, a cool little sentimental moment too, and seeing them like this uh, early in the early in the years. Yeah, I mean it's definitely really cool. I, I honestly think one of the things because people compare AEW to TNA a lot, I think rightfully so. But even before the pandemic, which made international travel impossible, I just think the one thing TNA does way better than AEW so far is like bringing over international wrestlers. Like right. AEW has a little bit of it, but I I honestly expect them to have way more even before. I mean, you know, maybe they would by now if if not for the fucking global pandemic, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, up until where the pandemic started, they they just didn't bring over that many international wrestlers compared to what I was expecting. But yeah, the you know, stuff yeah, and there's stuff like scheduling it to work out and, and visas and stuff like that. So it's that makes it a little bit harder. But um, but yeah, the pandemic kind of screwed things up, and there's no strong hearts in right now. There's no pack, unfortunately. But um, well, what I'm saying is they barely. I feel like they barely use strong hearts even before the pandemic. True, true, but they still had them in some capacity. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, as you know, because you never know what would have happened if there wasn't a pandemic and these guys would have could have been featured. Yeah, that's anymore. fair. You never know what they were going to plan with these guys. But because um, Chris with Pack, you know, Death Triangle was going to be a big player, I think, during the course of the year. Uh, him and Phoenix and Penta. But now it's obviously out the window for now. But, um, you know, look, these guys are all still young. And I think when this stuff does eventually get back to somewhat normalcy and guys can travel overseas again, they'll they'll bring them back and they'll use them, I think, uh, a bit more frequently. 
that, that's my that's my thoughts anyway. Yeah, I mean, I wish they would do more DDT too, since they have the the Tokyo Joshi relationship. But you know, mm-hmm. we'll see. All right. Yep. So Andrew, why don't you go ahead and give us your plugs as we wrap things up here? Sure. Yeah. So I host a podcast on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Uh, it's called Music of the Met. Um, as the name implies, it is a wrestling music podcast. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it comes out every other Tuesday or so. Uh, so check that out. It's on uh, it's on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts for the most part. Um, I also write occasionally for VoicesOfWrestling.com. Uh, so check it, that stuff out there. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Andrew T. Rich. And, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Music of the Met. All right. So, folks, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Russell Omakase. Wrestling, of course, did not fit. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget about the Patreon, patreon.com slash Wrestling Omakase. Uh, more stuff coming up on there all month long. Next week on the free feed, I'm going to be joined by returning guest Gerard, uh, Gerard DiTrolio, the Voice of Wrestling contributor. And he and I will be talking about the four New Japan uh, Cork and Hall shows that they never opened weight six-man title tournament the very exciting never open weight i couldn't believe how people went nuts for that but like anything on these core is after those first two cards is like a, a welcome uh surprise so uh but yeah we're gonna talk about those we're gonna talk about the two noah shows uh with the nakajima kano and the uh oh god I, who the fuck is goshi ozaki defend the title against i totally I totally forgot. I could definitely remember Nakajima Kano because I'm super excited for that match. But I've totally forgotten about uh, the Goshiozaki title defense. But whoever he's defending the title against, we're going to be talking about that too. So that'll be next week. In the meantime, everybody, uh, I want to thank you as always for listening. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>